A few years ago, my kids were a little smaller and my wife was really into buying reversible clothes for the kids. Do we have any moms that love reversible clothes? Come on, don't look at me funny like that. <clears throat> reversible clothes are amazing because, first of all, you don't have to wash them as much. You know, like one side gets dirty, you just flip it over. What's the big deal? You know? And if you get a little spaghetti sauce at the restaurant <clears throat> on it, you can just go in the bathroom and flip it over. See, I think we need more reversible clothes for adults. The world would be a lot better place, wouldn't it? And we have this term at our, at our house called a pro-mom move. Do you guys know what that is? That's when mom kind of defies the odds. When she kind of reverses something, when she, when she outsmarts the system. And we used to consider reversible clothes one of those pro-mom moves where we kind of like figured this whole thing out and, and made the family a little more productive and a little bit better. When I think about the story of Esther, I think about a total reversal. Um, a total reversal. Everything got flipped over. Um, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this powerful story from the Old Testament. This, this biblical hero by the name of Esther uh, is an amazing young woman. She begins uh, her, her journey... Uh, in the early pages of the book that bears her name as an orphan. She's an orphan girl, um, and the deck is totally stacked against Esther. One strike against her is she doesn't have parents, and she's adopted by her cousin by the name of Mordecai. Another strike against her is that she's Jewish, and she's living in a foreign land, the land that we know today as Iran, Persia. So she's a foreigner. Um, she's female, and women have almost no rights in the ancient times of the Bible, in the ancient world. And um, <clears throat> furthermore, uh, she's young. She's like 13, 14 years old. So you're, you're thinking, well, what good could come out of the life of Esther? And yet God strategically and powerfully positions her to save the Jewish race. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that King Xerxes, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, gets upset with his wife. He decides to find a new wife, and he has a beauty contest. Esther wins. She sits on the throne for about five years. Uh, a man by the name of Haman uh, is the right-hand man of the, of the uh, king. He's the prime minister and he decides that he can't stand the Jews. And so he, he decides to have all of the Jews in the Medo-Persian Empire wiped out on one particular day. And he manipulates the king and he gets the king to kind of go along with it. And a law is passed. Last week we saw that Esther intervenes in this very difficult situation and is able to save her people. The king doesn't even know that Esther is Jewish. And, and, you know, you kind of read the story and you think, well, why didn't Esther just talk to her husband? Well, in the Persian Empire, women did not speak to their husbands and queens did not speak to kings unless they were requested, unless it was requested by the king. 
So it wasn't like Esther could just go into the presence of the king and say, hey, honey, we need to talk. But she risked her own life making this appeal to the king and God moves the heart of the king and the Jews are saved. But now we find in chapter 8 there's still a problem. The law has still been passed. All of the Jews are going to be exterminated on this particular day. Now Haman, the guy that came up with this sinister plot, he's been hung. He's out of the picture. But the law is still enacted. And I want to see today how God reverses this terrible situation. Now, the reason I'm so excited about this message today is because I believe that God is the God of reversals. God is the God that can take things that are upside down and he can turn them right side up. God is the one who can take huge problems and turn them into amazing possibilities. So let's look together at this powerful story, this storyline here of Esther and how God reverses everything. And we're going to see how God reverses three things. And I want you to write these down in your notes today. Number one is God reverses my sentence. God reverses my sentence. Now in Esther 3.13 it says letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar of the 12th month. So, so this is the, the original edict that's put into place. Once, once the, the king's signature is on a law, it cannot be reversed. That's the law. It cannot be undone. And so Esther's like, well, you know, I'm glad Cayman's gone, but we still have a big problem. <laughs> the big problem is that word has gone out to the entire kingdom that all the Jews are going to be killed. The Medo-Persian Empire stretches, if you could just imagine for just a moment, from Ethiopia in eastern Africa all the way through modern-day Iran down to uh down to India and up through Turkey. If you could just imagine kind of that. This is, a, this is a major, 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 major piece of real estate. And the Medo-Persian Empire. They dominated the entire world. And all the Jews on one day are going to be killed. I mean, this is, this is a, sinister, a sinister plot. And it says they're going to kill the old people. They're going to kill the babies. And then they're going to plunder all their possessions. I mean, this is... This is bad. But what happens? After Esther makes her appeal to the king in chapter 8, verse 11, here's the reversal. The king's edict gave, to, uh, <clears throat> the, king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves and destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and uh, provincial army hostile to them, including women and children and to take their possessions as spoils of war. So the king cannot reverse the first edict, but he can put a second edict in place. And what he said was that the Jews could legally defend themselves. Do you see it? So, so, so he reverses 
He reverses course. Originally, all Jews are to be killed. Secondly, all Jews can defend themselves. They can raise up an army, and then they can kill everybody that tries to attack them, and then they can take all of their possessions for plunder. So this is the reversal. And so the edict is reversed. Now, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. In, throughout Scripture, we see that there is an edict. There is an edict. There is a spiritual law that says that sinful people cannot enter into the presence of a holy God. It's a spiritual law. It's an edict. It cannot be reversed. It's true. God is perfect. God is without sin. People are full of sin. How can sinful people have a connection with a holy God? Instead of reversing the original edict, God sent a second edict. And his name is Jesus. And Romans 6.23 is the reversal. Romans 6.23 is how God put it all right back together. For the wages of sin is death. That's the first edict. But here's the second But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, the Lord. And God reversed our sentence. If you are in Christ, your sentence, your spiritual destiny has been reversed. It's been reversed by the power of Jesus. And if Jesus has never entered into your life, man, you got the greatest opportunity of all. Man, today I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask Christ to come into your life because It is the greatest decision a person will ever make. And when Christ comes in, your spiritual future gets flipped upside down. Amen? Isn't that great? I mean, you want to talk about a reversal. A reversal. The Bible says we once walked in the darkness, but now we can walk in the what? In the light. Amen? I once lived under the dominion and the power of sin, but now grace is ruling in my life. No longer do I have to say yes to all the temptations and all the schemes of the enemy. I've been liberated by the power of Christ. I'm not the same. You're not the same. We've been transformed. This is the gospel. It's from death to life. It's from the darkness to the light. It's from the bondage of sin to the freedom of grace. We have been transformed and and sin does not have the final say over our life. God revoked it. We used to live under condemnation. Now we live under freedom. Uh, We used to live insecure and now we live with spiritual confidence because we know where we stand with God. There's a great reversal. There's a great reversal. But you know, sin always has a consequence, doesn't it? And it's really interesting because even though the king puts in a second edict, the Jewish people still have to fight for their own freedom. Now, now when the second edict comes down, the king says that the Jews can plunder, they can plunder the possessions of their enemies. We're going to see that the Jewish people actually don't do that. They don't do that. Because their, their idea is not to smear it into the face of their enemies. They just want to protect themselves. This edict is not uh, retribution. It's not like, you know, this kid made fun of you when you were 
in the first grade on the playground, you can go slit his throat. This is self-defense, okay? The edict is self-defense. If somebody attacks you, then you can defend yourself, okay? And when we keep reading, 75,000 people died trying to attack the Jews. I mean, that's how big that this kingdom is. And they know that the second edict is in place, but the hatred of the Jews is such that people are still trying to kill them. And even though there's a reversal, 75,000 non-Jews die attacking the Jews. We don't know how many Jews die. The Bible doesn't give us that record. But here's what I want you to see. When sin takes root in our life, there's always consequence. There's always consequence. Maybe we should think more carefully about the decisions that we make. Maybe we should be a little more sober-minded before we make that that decision to go down the path of temptation because because the consequences are, are great. And unfortunately, even though the Jewish race is saved, which is awesome and amazing, unfortunately, the sin of Haman leads to the death of many, many people. God reverses our sentence, but God also reverses our sorrows our sorrows. I mean, I love the story of Esther because there, there, there's this major transition. In chapter 4, people are depressed. They are wearing sackcloth and ashes, which is always a sign of mourning and depression and despair. But then at the end of the book, we find a celebration Uh, If you have a Jewish background or you have friends that are Jewish, maybe you've heard of the Jewish holiday Purim or Purim. It's the celebration that Jews still, uh, that they still practice today based on the saving of lives in the book of Esther. So there's still a festival, there's still a holiday. Thousands of years later, people are still commemorating the courage of Esther. But I want you to see the contrast Very specifically, in chapter 4, verse 1, let's look at it. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering into the king's gate. And there there was a great mourning among the Jews. People in every province were were. Uh, the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. But now, after the second edict has gone into play, now Haman has been hung on the gallows. Check it out in chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai went from the king's presence, clothed in royal blue and white, with a great, with a great crown and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Now, mind you, if you look back a few chapters, Mordecai, the good guy, the cousin, the, the, the legal guardian of Esther, saves the king's life. He overhears some guys talking about taking the king's life, and he sends a message to Esther, and the plot is, is, is ceased. It's stopped. And, and one night when the king cannot sleep, he has them read the, the chronicles of the kingdom. 
the historical records of his kingdom. Now, I guess if you want to get a good night's sleep, you know, you generally want to hear something very boring, right? <laughs> and so um, the servants come and they read to the king. And, and in the providence of God, he, he hears about the courage of Mordecai. And he thinks to himself, did we record, did we, did we, uh, did we, uh, did we bless Mordecai for saving my life? Did we reward him? And the servants say, well, no, we didn't. And so the next day, the king says, we need to throw a celebration for Mordecai. This guy deserves some credit. He deserves some praise. And they march him through the city and they put him you know, on the finest horse and he wears the finest garments and all that. And, and we see a reversal of fortune for Mordecai. I mean, Mordecai's a Jew. He's about to be killed. Now he has the favor of the king. Esther is, is a young uh, 14-year-old girl. She's, she's a young lady. She's, she's Jewish. She's, she's going to lose her life. Now she's the queen, and she's saving her people. There's, there's a great reversal. And, and in this story, we see both hurt and pain, and we also see celebration and victory. And this is a picture of the Christian life. God wants to turn your mourning into dancing, okay? In Psalm chapter 30, um, King David records, he says, you turned my weeping into dancing. And I don't know if God has ever done some things in your life that have ever made you want to dance before. Can I get a witness today? Amen? Yeah. I am a terrible dancer. I got to tell you this. This is kind of embarrassing. When I was a kid, I was such a bad dancer. My mom put me in break dancing lessons when I was a kid. It was bad, guys. I still can't dance. I guess I didn't get enough breakdancing lessons. I've never been able to dance. I've always wanted to dance. I admire people who can dance. I've never been a dancer before. One time, Gina and I were on a cruise ship, and they were doing one of those crazy parties, and the lady called me onto the stage to have me dance. I was literally petrified. I, I didn't know what to do. I was so embarrassed. And I'm a preacher. I love microphones and lights and cameras. I love all of that. I love to preach the gospel. But ask me to dance, forget it, man. I was, I was a total mess up there. But when I think about some of the wonderful things that God has done in my life, it makes me want to bust a move. Come on, somebody. It makes me want a Macarena. It makes me want a moonwalk. Senior adults, it makes me want to do the twist and shout. I want to get on TikTok. I don't even have a TikTok account. I want to get on TikTok and do a TikTok dance. When I think about what God has done, God is the one who turns weeping, weeping, mourning, into dancing, into dancing. Whenever the Bible talks about dancing, it's always an expression of celebration and joy. And God is the God of reversals. Listen, you, you, you may be discouraged today. Maybe you came to church today and you're kind of depressed or kind of down. Listen, God is the one who reverses how we feel. I, I love... Psalm 30, verse 15. 
It says, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You may get knocked down, but you don't have to be knocked out. You're going to get up in the morning. How many of you ever slept on it before? You know, you woke up the next morning and you felt a lot better than you did when you went to bed. Weeping may endure for a season, but joy is coming in the morning. Amen? Amen. I mean, listen, when the Lord is your focus, joy is coming. God's with you. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't be afraid. Hang in there. There's going to be a better tomorrow. And studies have actually shown that the more joy that people have in their life, the more productive that they are in their own existence. Do you believe that to be true? How many of you have ever been really discouraged? Were you, were you productive? <laughs> you just want to pull the covers over your head and, you know, push the snooze button and hope that the world goes away. But when you have joy in your life, guess what? You, you become more productive. U.S. News and World Report did a study. A few, uh, they released an article a few years ago about companies that are hiring joy consultants to build people up in the workplace because they discovered that if people will feel better about their life, they will perform better on the job. Well, you know, God knew that in the beginning. God wants us to be people who are joyful. Did you know 16 times in the book of Philippians the word joy is used? I love to think about that because the letter to the Philippian church is what we call one of the prison epistles. It means that the apostle wrote it when he was in a dungeon. Now, is that odd? Is that, is that weird that we would have a book of the Bible and the theme of it is joyful living but it's written by somebody who has terrible circumstances. I mean, the food's bad. There's no light. You know, I don't think inmates had a lot of rights in the ancient world, okay? These were not guys that played video games, watched TV, and lift weights. It's bad. And yet he talked about the joy of the Lord. I love it. You see... God is the one who reverses my sorrow because he's always with me. See, when I get really discouraged, did you know sometimes pastors get discouraged? Do you know that? You know what I, what did I think about? I think about the fact that God is always with me. I am not alone. He is always there. Sometimes people will let us down, but God is always faithful that's why we can be joyful. God is always there. God didn't go anywhere. He's always with us. And our emotions and our circumstances cannot dictate how we feel. Because for a lot of people, our emotions drive our life. If I'm feeling good, then, you know, I'm positive and I have a good outlook. If I'm feeling bad, then I'm bummed out. And a lot of people are like this all the time. But you know what will bring a steadiness and a consistency in your life? Is knowing, understanding, and living, living by the truth that God is always with us. God is always there. He hadn't run off. And our emotions may change, but God is always faithful. Uh, Pastor Rick Warren had a little devotional. And he said, 
this is how we experience joy in our life. This is all from the book of Philippians. And he did a little acrostic. I love this. J-O-Y. J stands for jettison all regrets. Philippians 3.13, where Paul says, forgetting the things that are behind me. You know, if you're going to be joyful, you have to let some things go. Amen? Like some of those bad choices that you made. So Sometimes the things that other people did to, to you, you, you got to let those things go. Forgetting the things that are behind me. How can you press on to the future if you're hung up on the past? So we need some holy amnesia in the name of Jesus. Okay? <laughs> holy amnesia. So he says, jettison all regrets. Number two, omit, oh, omit all worries. Okay, Philippians 4, 6. He says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. You see, if we want to have more joy in our life, we, we, we ought to strengthen our prayer life. We ought to pray more. We ought to talk to God instead of complaining to our friends. Omit all worries. And then finally, Y stands for yield yourself to God's purposes. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. I'm, I'm uniting my purpose and God's purpose together to do what God has called me to do. J-O-Y. Jettison all regrets, omit all worries, yield ourselves to God and his purposes. And when those things begin to happen, our sorrows begin to reverse. But there's also a third thing, and I want you to see this so carefully. God also reverses my situations. Now, you don't have to have your situations necessarily reversed to still have joy. Because we just talked about the fact that Paul had joy in prison and so you can have joy in spite of circumstances, but I also want you to know something today, that God also reverses circumstances. God changed the king's heart. Do you see it? I mean, you know, you're reading this, this story of Esther. My first thought was, the king is an idiot. Why did he consent to... <laughs> to this law in the first place. What's wrong with this guy? But God reversed his heart. The proverb says the, the, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? God is the one who reverses circumstance. Now, in Esther chapter 6, verse 8, it says there in verse... Uh, Verse 8, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse and the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on his head. This is talking about Mordecai. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and call out before him. This is what is done for the man that the king wants to honor. Okay, the, he saved the king's life. This is what happens. And the king told Haman, hurry and do just as you're, uh, uh, you're proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything uh, you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse and he clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Now, what's so funny about that is that 
Mordecai is, is the object of the wrath of Haman. It's because Haman hates Mordecai so much that, that he tricks the king into putting the law together. Now, <laughs> this is funny. Now, Haman, the hater, hater Haman, is showing honor and tribute to Mordecai. Don't you know this killed him on the inside? God reverses, God reverses what has happened. God, God reversed the edict to kill the Jews. Now the Jews can take care of themselves. They can defend themselves. God, God reversed the circumstance of Esther. Esther is a young teenage girl. She's just an average uh, little Jewish girl living there in Susa. Now, now she's the queen. God reverses circumstances. So don't believe for a second that just because you are where you are today that you will always be there. In week one of our series, we talked about how God is our elevator. God is the one who lifts us up. God is the one who opens doors. The theme of the book of Esther is God's providence. Did you know God is strategically and wonderfully orchestrating the situations and the scenarios of your life even when you don't see it. The name of God is not even mentioned one time in the book of Esther and yet God is seen everywhere. God is the one who reverses circumstances. There's so many great reversals in the book of Esther. In chapter 5 verse 11, Haman is honored by the king. In chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Haman is dishonored by the king. Earlier, he's talking to his ten sons about how much the king thinks of him. A few chapters later, the ten sons are hung on the gallows where their father was, was deceased. Has God delivered you out of some things? Have you seen God turn your darkness into the light? Have you seen it happen? God reversing things? Listen, give God some time to work. See, we're so impatient. We're like, God, I need that done yesterday. Come on, God. Sometimes God needs a little time to work. Just a little time. This, this whole thing transpires over, you know, maybe the period of a couple of months. Give God time to work. Give God time to move. Here's how you know God's timing. It always takes longer than what you think it should. Amen? That's how you know that you're starting to walk in the will and the power of God. Because you're like, God, this is wearing me out. I can't wait any longer, Lord. I thought the end of my rope was six months ago. Give God some time to work. Don't give up so easily. You know, there's another, there's another Jewish holiday. It's called the Passover. And it centers around a similar event over in the book of Exodus. Moses has a burning bush experience with God. God tells him, go liberate the people. For several hundred years, the Jews have been the slaves of the Egyptians. Moses does everything he can to get out of it. Finally, he goes to talk to Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh's like, you're crazy. I'm not letting the people go. He goes and he talks to the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders even tell him, Moses, let it go. We've been slaves all this time. We don't even know. We can't even imagine life without being slaves. We're going to just die here. And I mean, to me, that's the most depressing part of the story of the Exodus is when the Israelite people don't even have the will to stand up and to believe that things could be different. Sometimes you get so discouraged, sometimes you get so down, you don't believe that things could ever reverse. You just think you're always going to be depressed. Life is always going to be hard. And sometimes we lose hope. And the Jewish people have lost hope. Finally, Moses secures the release of the people. But instead of taking them in the normal route out of Egypt, he takes them to the edge of the Red Sea. And and Pharaoh is thinking, Moses is an idiot. He doesn't know where he's going. Now he's in the middle of a desert. He didn't take the right road like out of Egypt and... They're stuck. And Pharaoh's like, I'm going to go get them and bring them all back. I changed my mind. And the people are mad at Moses. Moses, you dragged us out here into the desert to die? Why couldn't we just die back in Egypt? You know, that's what we've always done. That's what we always know. But God was reversing things. A great reversal is about to come. God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites are able to walk across on the dry land. They're delivered, and then Pharaoh's army thinks that they can do likewise. So they come in behind the people of God, and God releases the waters. Oh, my goodness. You want to talk about a reversal. You want to talk about a change. You want to talk about something that's totally different. Wow. And the Passover Seder is a meal in which Jewish people remember and recount the story of the Exodus by eating certain foods. God reversed it. God reverses impossible things. Now look at chapter 9, verse 16. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. I love this because it says they got relief from their enemies. I mean, we'll talk about reversal, right? The people that hated them are now helping them. And then God gave them the power and the courage to defend themselves against everybody else. When God reverses situations, we should never smear it in people's faces. Now see, they could have plundered everything. But if they plunder all those who've been defeated, what happens? People just hate Jewish people more. Is that really going to make things better? No. And and so the the people show restraint. See, when God elevates you, when God blesses you, you should always show restraint. Don't go get revenge on everybody who put you down before. Have a spirit of humility and humbleness. Uh, Joseph is another great example of this. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. And he, through some very odd circumstances, becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And one day there's a famine. 
And the brothers that sold him out come looking for food. They don't even recognize that Joseph is the man they're asking to save their life. And instead of settling the score, instead of saying, you know what, you guys put me down, I'm going to put you down, what does Joseph do? He hands them an olive branch. He feeds them. He, he has uh, all, of the, all of his uh, family members come to Egypt. He gives them the land of Goshen, the best land there in Egypt. He provides for them. He protects them. And it's a great story. Um, and it reminds us that vengeance belongs to the Lord. You know? Let God settle your scores. You, you, you don't have to get back at the people that have wronged you because guess what? God will take care of all that. What we need to do is humbly serve him and God will take care of the rest. And so the Jews do that and they have a great festival and a great celebration that I want to talk more about next week. But for today, God is the God of reversals. God reverses our sentence. God reverses our sorrows and God even reverses our situations. That's why we love him. That's why we serve him. That's why we worship him. And that's why we give him all of our praise. Would you pray with me for just a moment?